Hi, I'm Brianne Bennis, and this is No End in Sight, a podcast about life with chronic illness. I'm really excited about today's episode, but before we get to it, I have a few sort of housekeeping items. First of all, this is episode 25, which feels like a big milestone. When I first started this project, I wasn't sure if I'd be able to find enough people to talk to me about something as personal as their health. But at this exact moment, I have 10 recorded interviews in the queue and even more on the calendar. I'm so honored by this opportunity to collect and share your stories. If these stories are resonating with you, then I would be so grateful if you could leave a review on iTunes. And if you know somebody who you think needs to hear these stories, I'd love it if you shared the podcast with them. I've also got some fun new graphics on the way to make this podcast feel more profesh, and I'm doing the extremely predictable thing of launching a Patreon soon to help with transcripts and other costs. Anyway, on to the show. Today, I'm talking to Julie Raymeyer about CFSME and mold illness and fringe experiments that can lead to unexpected health breakthroughs. Julie is the author of Through the Shadowlands, a book that I absolutely love. In the book, Julie tells her own story and mixes in a lot of really interesting research about the origins of chronic fatigue syndrome and the health impacts of mold in our environment. If you haven't read it yet, I think you'll love it. I've got a quick content note that near the end of the episode, Julie talks briefly about suicidal ideation. There are no details and you'll be past it in about 10 seconds if you want to skip ahead. Before we start, here's my disclaimer. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Make sure you talk to your practitioner about any questions or symptoms. Okay, so to get started, I like to start by just asking people, were you healthy as a kid? I was actually, I was quite healthy as a kid. Um, Didn't have any very serious problems. My mother was a Christian scientist, so I got uh, only a small amount of medical care. Um, And that was really kind of, that was almost never a problem. I I I have one memory when I was little of getting strep throat. And I remember how mad my mom was because she did have to take me to a doctor. Yeah, like for <laughs> um, to see a doctor and probably take medication of some kind, like a bunch exactly, of stuff. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yep, yep. And every time, you know, there was some kind of like cough syrup and every time she was so mad. <laughs> <laughs> she was like, this isn't working uh, for me. We're going to figure it out. Right. So, yeah, um, yeah there was there was really nothing very serious um, as a kid. <laughs> and then... Time passes, time passes, and at some point, um, and I will say also for this part in the recording, because I'll probably cut out where I said it before, you wrote a book about your experience with chronic illness, so I'm going to try not to ask you to retell all of it, but at one point, something changed, so what was that like? Yeah, so I was um, in my 20s, mid-20s, I was very, very active. I was building my own house on top of working (laughs) full-time. And, um, you know, just really kind of pushing myself to the limit. And I just started getting so tired. And my initial reaction was like, well, of course I'm tired. (laughs) Doing all this stuff, like who wouldn't be tired? And also I was married at the time. My husband was very ill on top of all the rest. So it was a pretty like just over the top stressful period of my life. Mm -hmm. Um, So my initial reaction was like, yeah, yeah, of course I'm tired. Yeah, and like it's stress. That's what happens to people with stress. Right. Stress and overwork and all that kind of stuff. But it was kind of a level 
beyond what I could really explain that way. Mm-hmm. Um, like I found myself trailing my hand along the wall as I walked from my office to the bathroom at work out of this sort of vague sense that I might pass out. Yes. Like, that's not just being like stressed and overworked. Like that's pretty weird. I mean, maybe, right? right? Like you can't dismiss that completely, yeah. but it does not really seem like, oh, you just need a vacation. <laughs> and, it, and it's also um, the kind of coping mechanism that like you might start slowly and you don't do it all the time. And then by the time that you notice you're doing it, you don't know how long it's been going on for. Like it's so great. Right. It sounds like. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but still, mostly I figured, OK, I just need to finish my house and like get my life in order and get some rest and I'll be fine. Mm -hmm. And I did all those things and I was not really fine. Like I was better, but not really right. And in particular, the thing now, you know, like in retrospect, it seems alarming about what I was experiencing then Mm -hmm. is I felt much worse if I exercised. Yeah. Um, and that, and like, I couldn't, you know, I, I, I sort of thought, okay, I've just gotten out of shape, which didn't really make sense since I had been like busting my butt building this house and, you know, right. but you know, okay, I guess somehow I got out of shape and I just need to get back in shape, but it didn't feel good. And I felt lousy afterward and I didn't seem to be getting any better. And, you know, it was just weird. Like the whole exercise thing was really weird. But, you know, at the time I was like, well, I don't know of any illness where like you just can't really exercise. Or like like where exercise makes you feel worse and not better. Exercise is healthy. Exactly. So I was like, okay, I just need to be patient and stick with it and it'll all be fine. Mm -hmm. And um, over the next few years, I did gradually get a little bit better. And the exercise thing got a little bit better. It was like not all the way there, but it was it was better. Mm-hmm. And then I moved to California, kind of this big change in my life, and went back to graduate school, went from being a professor to being a student again, which was actually super fun. Yeah. <laughs> I highly recommend it. Yeah, I bet that's um, a real shift. Uh, <laughs> um. It's like so much more fun being a student after you've like had this whole grown up life. You know? yeah. <laughs> so, um, that, it's starting to tickle the edges of my mind again of like, do you want to go back to school? And like, I have been to grad school, uh-huh. but like, is now the time? Probably not, but uh-huh. maybe. Right, right. Yeah, well, it was it was super fun. Yeah. But um, and also I was like, OK, now I'm really going to get in shape. And I was I was in school in Santa Cruz and and the campus there is like up this big hill. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'm going to ride my bike. I'm going to ride my bike to class every day and get stronger and stronger. Mm-hmm. And I was so slow that like I was like waiting for a toddler to come past me on a tricycle. Yeah. And. And again, it was like, okay, I guess, despite all my effort to get back in shape, I'm still not in good shape. I'll just, you know, but like, I didn't really get faster. Yeah. And then, um, and then I like just one day I was biking up and I was like, I'm going to die. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I cannot physically do this. Um, like I was. Yeah. And which parts? Cause like. Do you feel like there was a muscular part or like a tachycardia part? I'm sure it was a while ago and you don't remember. But when it comes to this, I think it's interesting because we almost we don't have a good vocabulary 
I think for describing That's like a really good point what it means to hit the yeah, wall. So what does fatigue mean? Yeah. 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 And the word fatigue like covers so many different things Yeah, and sounds trivial. Yeah. Um, sounds like tired. Yeah. I think it was right. I think it was largely a muscular thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was just, you know, there was also just this kind of ineffable sense of wrongness. Yeah. Um, you know, I think probably most people who are chronically ill know this feeling like this is not a good thing to ask my body to do right now. Yeah, like, my body wants to lie down here. Like, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Wherever like, I am. Stop now. Yeah. <laughs> this is bad. And and so, you know, of course, there's a point where no matter how determined you are, you're finally like, OK, 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 I'll stop. Yeah. <laughs> and then I, I, I was never able to do it again. Yeah. Like that was it. No more I could biking. never get up the hill again. Yeah. And you know, I was I mean, again, like I had no I had no structure to understand what was going on. Which mm-hmm. in retrospect, like it makes me so mad because that's like the one thing everybody should know about chronic fatigue syndrome is that it's it's problems with exercise. Like yeah. like if there's one thing that could be just out there in the public consciousness about chronic fatigue syndrome, it's that. Yeah. Um but it's not, and certainly wasn't then. I mean, even less than than now. Right. So and I probably I still co- encouraged as a treatment at that time. Totally. Yeah. Totally. And I hadn't been diagnosed or anything. I mean, I had no. I wouldn't even call myself sick. It was just like something right. not right. Something yeah. Not right. Um, and then, um, you know, for a while, I was like doing some other forms of exercise. I was pretty determined about this exercise thing, and and. Um, and then, and then what happened was I, I finished my year of graduate school and I was doing an internship. I was living in Berkeley and continuing to bike. I was big into this biking thing. And at that point I could do it. It wasn't like it had been earlier in Santa Cruz where I couldn't do it at all. I could do it, mm-hmm. but then, and I even enjoy it. Mm-hmm. But then like next day I would be so sore I could barely walk and that mm-hmm. was true like even if I didn't push myself very hard I would be like having to walk down the stairs backwards because I was so sore yeah and it was just yeah. like what the heck is going on here and also by then it kind of ended up being somewhat more general like I had this internship and I could work I could work from home mm-hmm. sometimes and working from home really meant like lying in bed not really able to work yeah you know yeah and so over the course of that summer, I got more and more concerned about it. And then I went to D.C. for another internship. And um, again, was like, I'm going to bike. I'm going to get back in shape. Yeah, was... this is the problem. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and, um, and then I got a... Um, I got a hepatitis A vaccine in preparation for a trip to Peru. Mm-hmm. And... 24 hours after I got that vaccine, I um, was just, I felt anesthetized. It was like, you will go to bed now. Mm -hmm. And I woke up and um, couldn't walk. Yeah. And had no clue. I mean, it was a little bit like how I felt after I had exercised and then would get like so sore I could barely walk. It was kind of like that, except Mm -hmm. I hadn't exercised. (laughs) Right. But like more, it sounds like. And and even more so, yeah. yeah. And so that was the first point where I was like, okay, I am, like, there is something wrong with me, and I have to figure out what it is. Although even there, it took several days, you know? Yeah. 
I was like, oh, this will just pass. It'll all be fine. Could be a coincidence. Um, I don't know what's going on, but I'm sure it's no big deal. I'll just, yeah. you know, a couple days rest. I'll be fine. Some sort of weird flu that I'm like paralyzed. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you hear about it all the time. A paralysis flu. Yeah. Right. But, you know, when it didn't go away after a week, it was like, okay, time mm-hmm. to get serious. And right? it was kind of steady state for about a week that you were really not. Yeah. I mean, moving. it was like up and down in that time, but basically, mm-hmm. you know, Around um, the same I mean, line. yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so I, I went back to California where I'd been living prior to going to DC and started seeing specialists and went to a neurologist because it seemed like, well, this is obviously, I mean, paralysis, some kind of neurological problem. And the neurologist examined me pretty cursorily, like nothing very fancy, just like pushed on my legs and stuff. And he was the one who diagnosed me with chronic fatigue syndrome. Mm -hmm. Which is interesting. (laughs) Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, it's interesting because it was the right diagnosis, actually. But um, for him, it clearly meant please get out of my office. I have nothing to offer you. Yeah, sure. You know, and I was like, okay. What does this so, mean? What does this mean? Like, you know, what specialist should I go to? Like, do I need further tests? Yes. Like, treatments, you know? Yeah. And he had no answers to any of those questions. Right. Yeah. And I was like, I was like, well, like, what if this were your wife or your daughter? What would you have them do? And it's very interesting that I said that because gender like I had an inkling already at that stage that there was something gendered you know I didn't say yeah. what would you do right I said well, what if it were your wife or your daughter yeah and he and he had nothing to say yeah nothing to say yeah uh, I, it's I think that like that approach as it comes up with people and I've to a female doctor asked what would you do and it's like they're so stunned by the question that because like, in my experience, it was also a useless question, but it was like, I'm very sick. You don't know why. In my case, she wouldn't refer me to any specialist at all. And I was just like, right. what What would you do in my position? Like, I can't work. I don't even know what. I don't have a diagnosis. I don't know what to tell my employer. She's like, well, I guess I'd talk to my employer. I'm like, what? What are you talking about? What would about? you say to your employer? Yeah. <laughs> like, you're a doctor. That's not what I'm asking you for. But... It makes sense because, like, the humanizing element feels very important for practitioners who haven't run across this very often. It's like, it's not just fakers. In fact, there are probably very few fakers, if any. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway. So, yeah. So, not helpful. Yeah. So, you know, off I go home and, you know, start Googling, like, what else do you do? Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, started seeing other doctors and like the only people who like build themselves as chronic fatigue syndrome specialists were like somewhere on the scale of quackitude. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, I couldn't really, it was hard to assess like how quacky is this person, but it was definitely like, there was no one who was, you know, I could find at that stage who was like, okay, this person is definitely not a quack. Right. Um, and that made me super uncomfortable. I mean, I was a science writer, a mathematician. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I also have my own. <laughs> sure. Like, there are other aspects of my personality and way of viewing the world. But nevertheless, like, the idea of going off to see people who are kind of quacky, this was way outside my comfort zone. Mm-hmm. But, like, what else am I going to do? Yeah. Like, there were, oh. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, I'm dead and rot. 
Yeah. <laughs> you get to a point, because I 100% feel this way and talk to people who are like very, only talk about medical stuff at the beginning. And then they're like, oh, yeah, no, I do also do whatever alternative stuff that people have tried, some that works, some that doesn't. And it's because, like you say, at a certain point, like, it's nothing or it's figuring out what you can afford to try both financially and energetically and then doing right. it, <laughs> I guess. Right. Um, and for a long time, none of those things really seemed to make any difference for me, which was yeah. kind of what I expected, you know? Yeah, totally. Um, and pretty so much how did you the start? things that helped. Um, well, I mean, I literally started by Googling, you know, chronic yeah. fatigue syndrome, Berkeley doctor. Yeah. Um, okay, there's nobody in Berkeley. Um, chronic fatigue syndrome, San Francisco doctor, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then, you know, friends recommend somebody or other and, you know. Um, but I was also, I mean, pretty quickly, I was like, okay, none of these people have anything to offer. Yeah. You know, like, I don't. This is not where I want my like lifeblood to go. Yeah. And so I pretty much gave up on doctors quite early on Mm -hmm. in things and, and just kind of figured out really on my own things that helped. So in particular, you know, I figured out that it really made a big difference not to overdo it. Mm -hmm. Like that's another thing. Like that is the first thing patients should be told with chronic fatigue syndrome. I mean, every primary care physician in the country should know that if they've got a patient with chronic, they, they should know if their exercise problems, think chronic fatigue syndrome, and they should know, okay, these people need to learn not to overdo it. They need to really rest and like really focus on learning to manage their limited energy. Like mm-hmm. everybody should know that, yeah. but that's not the reality. So, you know, I figured that out on my own and that made a really huge difference, really, really huge difference. I mean, it didn't solve everything by any means. And, you know, things would still happen like, you know, I'd walk five blocks to a cafe to go work. And then like halfway home, it would be like, oh, shit, I can't walk anymore. Yeah. I'm paralyzed. I can't take another step. What do I do? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um so, you know, that, that kind of stuff happened, but it, it happened less as I just learned to manage my energy better. Mm-hmm. Um, I also learned tricks like when I, this was the most bizarre thing. Um, my boyfriend at the time and I went um, to a like hot tub, not hot tub, but hot springs. There we go. Um, place, you know, mm-hmm. just for a vacation at one. Point. Yeah. And, uh, and, and they had a, like a, body temperature pool that you could just float in. Mm-hmm. And so at one point while we were there, I got paralyzed as I, you know, often did. And I staggered my way up to the hot tubs and pool, you know, I was going to myself regardless. And then like when I got out, I was fine. Yeah. And so this happened several times. And so then after we got home, then I was like, okay, I'm going to just, this is like the stupidest idea ever, but I'm going to try going to the pool when I'm paralyzed. So I like go in with my walker, you know, grunting every step, like staggering my way in. Didn't somehow didn't occur to me to just like get a wheelchair. It's like the most obvious thing in the world, but somehow that step to like get a wheelchair, it's a very emotionally big step to take. So instead I like huge spectacle, you know, when I'm in that state and 
trying to, you know, I mean, everybody looks at me like, oh my God, what is wrong with that person? Yeah, your <laughs> um, mobility is not and then I, as expected. Yeah, and then I slipped into the water and swam like two laps and got out and I was fine. Like, well, fine <laughs> yeah and I still like I have no explanation for that I, I was gonna no say idea. do you have a theory about why even if it's totally inexplicable or like nonsensical so my theory my theory is I mean this is just kind of based on the way it feels mm-hmm. my theory is that like the uniform resistance of the water somehow um like helps to reset my brain like mm-hmm. you know that something like somehow my brain kind of like loses track of how it's supposed to work. Yeah. And that, that the, the way that water provides resistance everywhere somehow. It's like uniquely therapeutic in a mysterious way. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's okay that yeah. it's mysterious. No doctor, I ever, no doctor I ever talked to had any explanation for that either. Mm-hmm. And I mean, of course it's also hard to know, like how many people when they're paralyzed would try swimming <laughs> right you know, like, it's such a stupid idea you know it's hard to know how many people would work for and of course the paralysis thing is not particularly common anyway so yeah to have knows. it to have your kind of fatigue exhibit in that really specific way where your muscles mm-hmm. are literally like not responding right that was that's right my experience yeah. yeah and it and it's like not even just it's it's fairly separate from fatigue like it really is just like my brain and my muscles are not communicating mm-hmm. um, rather than don't have the energy to move my muscles. Right. Um, to They're not responding. So, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so for, for several years I managed it, you know, with that kind of stuff and um, you know, it was definitely a kind of limited life, but it was, a life, you know, like mm-hmm. I felt like I had a life. And were you um, work in what capacity were you working at that time? Yeah, so I was I was um, freelancing. Yeah, as so a writer, writer. A science writer. So that was good because I can I could kind of titrate it according to how I was doing. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's not yeah. like there was an employer who would say you must be here from nine to five you know, whether you're feeling shitty or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is what's so really hard. That really yeah. It's really hard. I, I mean, I couldn't have done it. Like, I don't know what I would have done if I hadn't had the option of being a freelancer. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because as a freelancer, it's just like, well, okay, I'm the one who decides what stories I'm taking on, and, you know, I can just try to get them done well before the deadline. And if I'm going through a crappy period, then I just take on less and, yeah. you know can kind of look out yeah yeah so um and there were significant ups and downs during that period like there were times when I was practically well and then other times I was pretty bad shape Mm -hmm. um and then in late 2010 um I was in a really good period I was even able to go for fairly substantial hikes like slowly and carefully but you know I could hike like three miles which was pretty good yeah um I would be happy with that and I would be I was psyched. Um, and, and of course, saw this as just the beginning of a steadily climbing upward trajectory. But in yeah. fact, I went on one of these yeah. hikes, three mile hikes, and about a mile from home, uh, this, was, I, this was in Santa Fe, so I, I 
that this was I was at the house that I had built in Santa Fe. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, which is like out in the boonies and lots of hiking right out my front door. So I was on one of these hikes um, about a mile from home, and I was like, oh, I'm I'm kind of tired. And I had learned that the way of managing it was as soon as I thought I'm a little tired, that was the time to stop right then. Like not five minutes from then, um, you know, it was like right then. Mm -hmm. Um, And not when it's like, oh, I'm really tired. But like the moment it was like that little whisper in the back of the mind that you kind of almost don't notice of I'm a little tired, that time to stop. Yeah. But like, you know, I couldn't stop because I'm... You're in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) You know, that was just not going to happen. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to just rest for a while and then I'll just walk really slowly and be really relaxed. It'll be fine. I'll just rest a little more now. (laughs) Um, And made it home. I was so relieved just to make it home and knew, like, okay, I'm going to pay for this. But, like, you know, I was like, it'll be okay. I'll just have a bad day. It'll be fine. Well, it wasn't a bad day. It was a bad year. Yeah, um, I was basically yeah. bed bound for much of the time for the following year plus. Mm-hmm. So um, that was really terrifying. Yeah, and at that and at that point, I was like, okay, I have to find a doctor who can help. You know, I had like given up on doctors early on, but also in the intervening years, you know, I kind of found the chronic fatigue syndrome community online and. Um, learned a lot that I didn't know when I very first got sick. And in particular, I'd found the, at that time, there were like five specialists in the world. <laughs> um, and um, most of them had, you know, like a three-year waiting list or a waiting list where they just took the patients they were most interested in and the rest just waited forever. Yeah. Gotta love that. Yeah. Um, but I found one who had like, their waiting list was only three months. Awesome. Um, and so I went off to see her and she was, fantastic she's wonderful but unfortunately nothing nothing she did really helped yeah um despite being so wonderful and so and at that point my relationship with my then boyfriend kind of fell apart in Mm -hmm. face of this yeah Um, you know it had not been doing terribly well anyway and then this was just way too much um so um so i left him which was a pretty terrifying thing to do Wow, that's sick. And I yeah. moved back to yeah. Santa Fe and um, was living in a pair of travel trailers that I lived in while I was building my house, um, which was good because it was cheap. I could rent my house out. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, of course, we always have these stories, you know, oh, now that I've left this relationship that's not working, I'll come back to Santa Fe, I'm sure it'll all be fine. Yeah. And it wasn't fine. And, you know, basically couldn't work. And like, what is going to happen to me? You know, like I didn't have family to turn to. Um, I was really alone. I did not have like a great big savings account. Mm-hmm. Um, and just like, you know, if I get a little bit worse, I'm not going to be able to take care of myself. Like I'm not going to be able to get groceries. And like, what happens, you know, what, like what is going to happen to me if I can't like get to the bathroom in time, Mm -hmm. you know, like I don't know what's going to happen to me. Yeah. And like, if I can't feed myself, I can't get 
edible food. Yeah. It's terrifying in that sense that our society does not really provide any answers to those questions. Yeah. You know, it's, it's really kind of shocking and pretty horrifying. You really could be in that place of like, I don't know how I'm going to survive in this world. Like if I get just a little bit sicker, mm-hmm. like, am I just going to die? Am I yeah. just going to starve to death because I can't myself? Yeah. Um, you know, um, so, so at that point, I ended up hearing about a group of patients who, um, who were convinced that mold was responsible for their illness. And initially I was like, oh boy, you know, one more crackpot theory. Yeah. It's like another <laughs> tinfoil hat club. Exactly. Um, but whatever, good for them. Um, but I got, I got contacted by one of these patients who was very, very smart and um, very impressive in many ways. And um, like hard to dismiss as just a total wacko. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so I was like, okay, well, I'll just sort of look into this. And, you know, like the stuff that she said, I kind of felt like, well, I'm not convinced this is true, but it makes sense, as much sense as anything else I've heard, you yeah. know, like nobody has any very good theories about this illness. Yeah. And, um, and like these patients who were taking really extreme measures to avoid mold, they were actually a lot better. Mm-hmm. Um, like I had not heard very many things where there were like a group of people who were a lot better. Like you'd hear an isolated person who had this or that crackpot thing. They thought that made all the difference for them, but mm-hmm. like this was a group of people. So, so anyway, I decided to, I decided to give it a try, particularly because I was told that I could kind of run an experiment and go to the wilderness for two weeks with none of my own belongings yeah, and um, to, to get clear of mold. And that, um, if mold was my problem, that when I came home after that, that I would react clearly and strongly to my own stuff. Mm-hmm. So, um, so anyway, so I, so I was like, okay, I'll try it. Yeah, and, like you have nothing to lose at this point. Right. Yeah, exactly. It was like, it's almost certainly stupid, but like it, it was very appealing just to like have an adventure, even being that sick. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. who knows? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so I went and the, the kind of short version is that it worked. Yeah. Um, yeah. I came home at the end of two weeks and I, um, spent 30 seconds in my trailers and I ended up paralyzed afterward yeah. when I hadn't gotten paralyzed in the desert yeah. at all. So that was pretty stunning. And then I had all of these kind of confirmatory experiences with it, mm-hmm. you know, with having experience and getting paralyzed and then like a week after I got back from the desert I was out at my land just I had been feeling kind of crummy in town and um thought okay the outside air on my land is probably better I'll just go hang out outside on my land and I and I did feel better and then I thought well I'll just try taking my dog for a little bit of a walk I'm sure I won't be able to go far but what the heck Mm -hmm. and I ended up walking to the top of the like 350 400 foot hill behind my house 
yeah. which I hadn't been able yeah. to do for a year and a half previously. Mm-hmm. So that was the point where I was like, okay, well, I don't care if this is a crackpot or not. Like, if it's going to give me these results, I am on board. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. Which um, is also the thing for sometimes people online who are skeptical of stuff like this, where they're like, don't do it. It's a waste of your time and energy. There's no science, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, right. okay, like, and if it works, it right. works. But there's no science. For you. For, and also, like, like the scientists have so abandoned us mm-hmm. that, like, if you're going to wait around for some scientifically validated approach, like, yeah. you got a really long wait. Like, yeah. that may be your whole life, just sitting around waiting. Yeah. Um, it's like the Stanford Clinic. And, period. <laughs> Right. I mean, it's different now than it was then. There actually is some decent research going on now, mm-hmm. but um, there was well, almost nothing. There yeah. was nothing. I mean, this was 2000, 2011, 2012 was when okay. I went to the desert. Yeah. And like 2011 was when the PACE trial came out, this really oh, horrible piece of junk study that claimed that exercise and therapy will cure chronic fatigue syndrome. Oh, um, chronic fatigue syndrome. <laughs> Yeah, and it's total bunk. Science is terrible, you know, blah, blah, blah. But, like, that was the best science had to offer us. Right. So, like, you know, boy. it was the standard for, like, doctors and insurance and medical systems until, I want to say, for some. It still is, really. It's just Mm -hmm. starting to change now. Yeah. It's just starting to change. Yeah. Um, After enormous effort. um, Yeah. I mean partly from me and and Mm -hmm. from a whole bunch of really smart patients and another journalist, David Tuller. And I mean, it's been a massive effort for many, many people. Mm -hmm. And it's finally, finally reaping rewards. But for decades, I mean, people were working against this for decades with like no apparent success. Yeah. So yeah, it just felt like... This is amazing. Yeah. If you're going to wait for like, for, you know, white coated scientists to save you, you got a really, really, really long wait. Yes. So yeah, finding something that actually seemed to work for me, mm-hmm. it's like, great, great. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, um, so then, you know, lots of other things happened. I mean, it was definitely not a just kind of direct trajectory right. upward at that point, but, right. but it was an amazing, amazing recovery. And, um, and, uh, up until like, three years ago, I was um, pretty close to completely recovered, actually. It was really quite amazing. I mean, like, running 12 miles and um, swimming and able to go into all but the moldiest buildings and um, really, you know, doing kind of amazingly, amazingly well. Um, Before you get uh, to this turning point that you were about to get to, then I have a question about um, the moldiest buildings, you said. So did you find... After removing yourself and all the things, and people can get details in your book because, like you say, it's not that simple. But um, did you did your tolerance slowly improve again so that if you had a, like a clean environment and you spent a lot of time outside, you could go do things without kind of losing your progress? How did that <clears throat> did that change? Right. So it was definitely not a linear thing. Um, so actually, you know, initially, in a way, things were much worse. <laughs> From a certain perspective, I mean, you know, before I went to the desert, like I never had any obvious reactions to buildings, mm-hmm. right? And then um, 
after I got clear in, in the desert, then, you know, certain buildings like I would walk into and collapse. Right. Um, and, and the degree of reactivity to like unbelievably tiny amounts of mold was like stretched my own <laughs> credulity. Like, yeah. It was very hard to believe. And yet at the same time, like you can't, it, it, it was simultaneously kind of incredible and absolutely undeniable. You yeah. Know? Um, so, so there was quite a while when I was um, definitely getting healthier and stronger all around, but also my reactivity was very, very high and um, not, not coming down. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it's a very hard way to live, you know, yeah. when you're super reactive and, you know, uh, just the degree, of, the degree of care that's necessary to keep yourself stable and it's vigilance, so, I would think. Yeah. Yeah, it's really it's really, really difficult. Um so the thing that ended up making a difference this is actually uh, this is a pretty wild um story. Um and uh in a certain way it's like the um I mean there are a lot of different things going on in the book, but in a certain sense it's um sort of the apex of the book in the sense that a lot of what I'm trying to accomplish with the book is to, you know, I felt like with my science writer colleagues, like this illness took me across a divide where I could never see the world again. Mm-hmm. Anyway. And in talking to my science writer colleagues, like there was this sort of basic sense of like science is good and, you know, science will answer our questions and, you know, yeah. and, and it was like, no. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I still think science is good, but I like, I have come to have a very different sense of its limitations, um, and you know, and I feel like there are a lot of questions that it's really never going to answer for us. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, I mean, at this point, I sort of feel like, like there is this black universe, and science is this little flashlight that we have. <laughs> Yeah, and the idea that this little flashlight someday will illuminate the whole world if we just keep at it is like ridiculous. You know, yeah. it's like so far from reality. And really, it's like okay, we have this little flashlight. It's really little, but it's all we got. Yeah, and it's like incredible. You know, it sheds light in the midst of all this darkness. And now we've got to be really smart about how we use it yeah. in order to get it tell us anything useful and the idea that it's gonna like replace the sun is just absurd um so anyway so so a a big part of what i was trying to accomplish with the book was to kind of bit by bit like drag my science writer friends and people like them across this divide with me like Mm -hmm. you know sort of drag them down the rabbit hole or maybe not drag, but seduce them. <laughs> <laughs> entice. Like, them, yes, entice them with a really good story that they follow along and they're like, oh, I'll take that step with her. I'll take that step with her. Okay, I'll take one more step. And then all of a sudden, oh my God, they're in this alternate universe with me that they like, never wanted to go to. <laughs> yeah. 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 Where uh, things get wacky. So, where things get wacky, exactly. Um, so, that's all kind of um uh, uh um preface for for the 
story that I was about to tell. So during this period when I was like overall getting stronger and stronger, but still extremely reactive, um, I had met a new partner, um, John, who's now my husband and is very wonderful. And John mentioned this psychic that he had seen and he talked about it with great enthusiasm. And and I was like, oh, boy, <laughs> I'm psychic. Okay. <laughs> You're like, I'm learning a lot about you right now based on this recommendation. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, but at the same time, you know, I was pretty crazy about this guy. And I was like, well, you know, if John thinks this guy's worth seeing, I'll give it a try. And he actually had a recording of a session that oh. he had had with psychic. And so... I listened to this recording and, and, you know, I I won't go into all the details of it, but like, it was actually impressive. I mean, not on the level of like thinking necessarily that he was necessarily clairvoyant in any way. Um, You know, that's hard to say. And you'd need a lot of evidence to be confident of that. Um, But clearly in terms of like the impact that the second John, just hearing it over the course of, the hour recording it was like wow that was actually really useful like yeah something helpful is happening for you exactly and like what that something is exactly like does it really matter um so um you know and like okay maybe this is just a sort of like wise intuitive guy who doesn't actually have any clairvoyance but you know kind of presents his insights in that format which kind of makes them go in deeper you know mm-hmm. well that sounds pretty good right yeah. like like that's fine so I'll take it. Yeah. yeah so i was like sure i'll you know it'll be an interesting experience i'll go so so i went to see this this psychic and um i thought he was pretty weird <laughs> sure um, um and then he he you know he said a lot of things that were you know interesting and and then he recommended that I come back for for some energy work, whatever that was. Yeah. <laughs> I was yeah. like, okay, I'll, I mean, in for a penny, in for a pound, whatever. Right. <laughs> totally. How can you know for sure if you haven't fully tried it? I think that's right. fair, even yeah. when you're skeptical. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So I so I went back for this energy work session, and um, and it ended up being um in a way, not very far from what an ordinary therapist might do. Um, mm. It was, you know, focused on kind of past trauma stuff and involved some breathing exercises and blah, blah. And at the end of the session, this guy said, um, uh, the, uh, the, the association between the trauma and the mold has been completely broken. And you no longer react. And I was, you know, like my first reaction was, Oh come on, bullshit! Right. And then my second reaction was, I, "That's a, like I. That sounds great." Yeah, if this <laughs> I, is I'm true, energy. Like I'm not going to channel much skepticism into that because, like, the placebo effect is good enough for me. I will totally. go for it. Totally. Um, if it was somehow in your mind entirely, and this causes that to resolve, then that is only a good thing. Even that's if right. the mechanism makes no sense to you. That's right. The power of suggestion is good enough for me. <laughs> yeah. So, <clears throat> so John and I got together for dinner that night, 
And, um, you know, I told him about the session and told him about this guy's prediction that, you know, the association with old is completely broken. And this restaurant we were in was connected to a hotel. And the restaurant was okay, but the hotel we knew was moldy. So John was like, well, let's go test it. We didn't walk through the lobby of this hotel. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so, so we did. And I immediately, you know, I walked into the lobby and I immediately felt the mold. And I was like, okay, well, <laughs> you know, big surprise there, right? Like, yeah. you know, <laughs> you know that was a nice it. fantasy to have for two hours, right? But it was going to be like the door to the outside was about as close as if I had like turned around and gone back. So I was like, okay, I'll just like real fast go across this lobby and get outside. Mm-hmm. And as I walked, like, instead of getting worse, which what would normally happen, I started feeling sort of better. And so I stopped just before I went out. I was just kind of standing there. And then I was like, well, maybe I'll just try walking around this lobby a little bit more. And, (laughs) and so I did, and I actually was okay. Like I was very aware of the mold, but it wasn't crippling me. Right. So it was a funny thing because, you know, I mean, I was thrilled. I was also, I mean, I was skeptical that it would really hold up, but, mm-hmm. um, but I was thrilled regardless. I was also a little embarrassing. <laughs> sure. Fair. <laughs> um, but it actually did hold up and mm-hmm. um, it, it brought a quite lasting reduction, not total resolution, but quite lasting reduction mm-hmm. in my reactivity. And, um, you know, the way that I ended up thinking about this um, is I, you know, my sense of these things is when I was learning to avoid mold after I got back from Death Valley, what I was doing was I was like tuning into the tiniest sensations when I got exposed. And I was teaching myself that those tiny sensations were actually a really big deal. And that was the system that I needed to get all out. And I did need to get the hell out. I mean, you know, I really had been poisoned by mold. And like one of the things I do in the book is I actually really dig into the science. And there's quite a bit of science yeah. um, that that supports the idea that mold could cause these kinds of problems. I mean, there's also some gaps in the science that just haven't been studied. And there are lots of reasons we haven't studied them. But like it actually is pretty biologically plausible that yeah. mold cause you know could actually really truly poison us and i do think mold really truly poisoned me but in this process of learning to avoid mold i was basically teaching my brain that these tiny symptoms were actually a really big deal yeah so that's this kind of feedback loop like you know that's a big deal and then your brain kind of focuses on it and amplifies it and it it's this kind of feedback loop that increases the reactivity and this is by the way is what Basically, everybody I know of who has experimented with um, extreme mold avoidance has experienced is mm-hmm. that the reactivity goes way, way, way up. So that's extremely useful because right. you really do need to avoid it. Like you really need to give your body a break. And the only way to do that is to learn to detect it mm-hmm. and to have those like really slight sensations be big enough that you can you know, identify them. Yeah. Um, but of course, when it's at the level that like you're, you know, collapsing in a heap, well, that's not so helpful. Right. right. And like constantly so, or regularly when you go out. <laughs> exactly. So 
there's a point where, I mean, I think there's a kind of stage where, like, you really need to just, like, the only thing that matters really is giving your body a break so you can heal. Mm-hmm. And there's a point where it's like, okay, it's time for this to settle down. And, um, and I also think part of what happens with that is that the, that those kind of circuits that get, um, sort of dug into your brain, um, like each, each reaction, I think they also kind of like tie into previous trauma circuits. Mm-hmm. You know, you've had previous traumas, like you've learned, oh, you know, this is the warning sign for this really bad thing. So mm-hmm. I better watch out for the warning sign for this really bad thing yeah. so that I can do everything and to avoid it. And, yeah. you know, like, I mean, my mother <clears throat> was not a very stable person and I my childhood, you know, I was the expert, the world expert at managing my mother. Yeah. <laughs> and so that process of like tuning in to those for early symptoms, you know, those early yes. signs that something was going wrong with her so that then I could try to intervene and prevent totally. the disaster. That yeah. was like survival mechanism for me yeah. as a kid. So that kind of, there's like, I, I feel like those, those early traumas like set up neural pathways that then get exploited by the, by the mold stuff. So, um, so my sense of this experience with the psychic is that, you know, in, in his weird way that he managed to kind of interrupt that process for me Mm -hmm. and, and sort of jump me out of that particular neural pathway that my brain was sort of stuck in. And And it sounds like, even giving you permission to be less reactive because like you, like you were just saying, like you get to a point where you're so hypervigilant that you go from zero to 60 every time there's a sign or you right. like a sign of mold. And so someone's saying, Hey, you, I know those aren't the exact words, but like, Hey, this connection is broken now. And right. you're like, okay, now like, I can yes, look that at possibility. Yeah. Like look at these inputs and go, Oh, maybe Obviously, that's right. not what it feels like in the moment, but it's like right. giving your brain and body the opportunity to pause and rest in the moment instead of immediately going into crisis mode, even though crisis mode has served you really well, which is kind of what you're right. describing, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. So then later on, um, uh, you know, I was wanting to kind of take this a step further because, um, you know, like that was very nice with the psychic. It didn't resolve everything. Um, and being, you know, it didn't feel like this was a pathway, really a reliable pathway toward, toward complete resolution. And so I was thinking about all this and I kind of developed my own methods to try to do the same thing. So mm-hmm. in particular, what I did was had, I was thinking about dog training because <laughs> these same these same things are really relevant. You know, what happens in our own brains happens in dog brains too. Mm -hmm. So when I met my husband, um, he had a, he had a cat and I had a dog and my dog had only dealt with cats outside and she knew exactly what to do with cats. And it was really fun. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, so, you know, it was, it was like, she saw a cat and her little doggy brain just exploded and yeah. she chased it <laughs> and it was great. Yeah. And so, um, so there was this process of, I mean, in a way that is like exactly the same thing, like 
cat immediately led to brain explosion. Mm-hmm. And like she had seen so many cats and had this like very exciting experience that it had like it had dug this kind of groove in her brain. Um, and so so the challenge was to like dig another groove. Um, right. And so what we did was that we um, we he his house was two stories, and so we got a baby gate to put across the stairs so that Lau, the cat, had a safe zone. <laughs> and then um, John would appear with Lau at the top of the stairs, and um, I would be at the bottom of the stairs with Francis, and then I had cheese, and I would immediately start giving her <laughs> little bits of cheese. So her only job was to eat the cheese. Like, that's yeah. all she had to do was to eat the cheese. And we did this a whole bunch of times, um, and then... I waited like half a second before I gave her the cheese after the cat appeared. And by then she knew what to expect, right? She's supposed to get her cheese. <laughs> and so she, you know, looks up at me, Hey, where's my cheese? Yeah. And that's like, right. That was like the beginning of victory because instead of cat immediately leading to brain explosion, it was mm-hmm. cat leads to me leads to cheese. Right. Yeah. That's still um, a good deal. I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And so then we could expand on that. You know, I could make her wait a little longer. I could ask her to sit first. I could ask her to, um, you know, come away from the cat, you know, on and on and on. Yeah. And, and so gradually that like teeny bit of space that, that was opened up became a big space. And, um, you know, they're now friends. They play. <laughs> time. Um, so it was like exactly the same thing that I wanted to do with my own brain, like mm-hmm. rather than mold immediately leads to brain explosion, mm-hmm. then I wanted to create something else. And so, so what I did was that I, um, gave myself very carefully calibrated exposures, excuse me. And, um, and then like at a level where like I could feel it, but my body wasn't totally freaking out. And then I did whatever I could think of that would like reach my body and help it to calm down, you know? So I would put on fun music and dance or I would do yoga or I would meditate or I'd just like stroke my skin or, you know, anything I could think of that just mm-hmm. kind of communicated to my body. No, it's actually okay. Yeah. And then, um, you know, before, before there was any kind of freak out, then I would go take a shower and, you know, right. um, remove the exposure and make everything okay. And so, and then I could gradually increase these exposures. And I think that that process in a way is, I mean, I think the, the psychic um, kind of had a shortcut to that, but I think the fundamental thing that he was accomplishing was mm-hmm. the same as what I was doing with those controlled exposures. Yeah. Um, and that, yeah, that made a really big, made a really big difference mm-hmm. and was part of how I was get to, able to get to the point where, um, only the very worst buildings bothered me. Yeah. And running 12 miles, you said and just like, running 12 miles. Yeah. Awesome. It was awesome. Totally awesome. Um, yeah. And so then it sounds like there's one more stage after that. Yeah. Unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Which is, that's so how it, it is, happens. right? <laughs> it is how it is. Yeah. Unfortunately, like, yeah, you know, life, life is not happily ever after. Like, this is yeah. not the way life is, right? If it goes on and more things happen. Things so, keep happening. Yeah. So what happened was my next door neighbor's house flooded. And mm. she made a series of unfortunate decisions that actually ended up getting toxic mold growing in her soil. 
which mm-hmm. I didn't even know was possible, mm-hmm. is. So, um, yeah, the whole story is kind of long and grim. <laughs> okay. But um, the short, grim version is that um, if I walk up to her berry patch where she put this contaminated materials, then I actually collapse. Mm. And, um, and, and the result is that I cannot live in my own home. So I yeah. lost my safe home. Right. And also in the process of trying to deal with this, then I got a zillion exposures, which is basically exactly what is designed to increase reactivity mm-hmm. so um so i've gotten really sick again yeah i'm very um so you know still trying to i mean the good news is like i got through it once so i know i'll be able to get through it again um, right but at least there's a good chance right like i don't know yeah. but there's a good but, chance i'll be able to get through it again you um, know a lot more than you knew last time I knew no, a lot more than I knew mm-hmm. last time. And I have a lot of, you know, I have my husband. And I have a lot of support that I didn't have then. Um, but it's been three years of dealing with this and um, and just such an incredible drag. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And it's, a, I mean, it's an amazing thing to just the extremity of it. Like, you know, I'm basically homeless. I'm living in a van. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And, like, can't find a house that I can tolerate. And, right. you know, it's very interesting now, like, walking past a homeless person on the street, it's like, oh, I feel you, you know? Yeah. Like, it is not remote at all for me. Like, you know, like, if I lost all the resources that I have mm-hmm. and I didn't have the van, like, right. I couldn't go to a home shelter, right? Like, I couldn't. I physically couldn't. Right. It would be impossible for me. Yeah. As a space, it, and it would, like, how, it's not even like there are good access options for, say, shelters to try to become more accessible in this currently yeah. poorly defined way. Like, right. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's, there's a, it's an amazing feeling to just be like, wow, like this world is not built for me. And like people don't understand, you know, people don't understand yeah. and in such a kind of like existential way. And like yeah. I think about it, like if if I collapsed, like I can I can get to the point where I collapse and I'm unable to speak. Mm-hmm. And like if somebody found me in that state, like they would take me to a hospital, right? Mm-hmm. Of course you would. Yeah. And like, what if the hospital were moldy? Which I'm like, sure a lot happen? of them are. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's a. It's a. You know. Wow. There's something yeah. just so. Um. yeah wow (laughs) yeah and do you have do you wear a medic alert bracelet um yeah i i do i I haven't been lately but i showed again um have that question just specifically makes me think of it but because like that's what medical alert bracelets are designed for but in this specific context like it's it's still far outside of experience yeah yeah yeah, but I, I actually, uh, yeah, I kind of came up with, I came up with a, you know, something that I think people will understand, you know, in mm-hmm. particular, just get me outside. <laughs> yeah. Just get me outside. Yeah. Um, outside, over time, start. help me find clean clothes, like, or debate. Right. Yeah. 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 Rinse, rinse hair and clothes. Yeah. Yeah. 
Just hose me down. <laughs> Get me outside and hose me down. Yeah, that's so it. <laughs> it sounds simple, but outside isn't always safe either, depending. Yeah, yeah. right. It's yeah. The, the flare nature of it, especially when you have, like, you have an identified trigger. It's interesting because do you think, or hang on, let me think about how to phrase this question. You think that chronic fatigue syndrome is the right diagnosis for you. And also you are able to really put together kind of when your body is flaring and when there's been mold exposure. Um, Do you think that those, or how often do you think that those overlap? Or do you think that they're kind of coexisting things for you? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So here's how I think about it. Um, My understanding of of chronic fatigue syndrome, which I generally call ME-CFS for yeah. ME is for myaldic encephalomyelitis, um, just because chronic fatigue syndrome is such a perfectly horrendous name. Yeah. Um, and like deeply so, political. Yes, deeply political. Yes. Um, so anyway, the way I think about ME-CFS is um, I think our bodies, you know, in some way sustain a whole series of insults. And the particular nature of those insults varies from one person to another. Um, And the result of those insults is like something breaks. And we haven't really identified what that something is very precisely. I mean, we know some things about it. It's not like we know nothing. But Mm -hmm. um, in fact, we know a lot of things that break, but we don't know what ties it all together. Right. Um, But that what that particular combination of insults is varies from one person to another. So, you know, for me, clearly mold played a big role. Um, mm. But I don't think mold was the only thing even for me. You know, there, like, there's clear evidence that viruses are part of the picture for me. Um, also, you know, I was going through a period of extreme physical and emotional stress at the time that I started getting sick. Like, that's huge, right? I mean, that's a physical, physiological stressor. Um, Mm -hmm. We know that, you know. So, you know, you put all those things together and, like, there's something that, there's something that breaks and that is not, like, doesn't easily go back. Um, So, you know, at this point, like, earlier in my illness, I think um, ME-CFS was really the appropriate diagnosis. At this point, I mean, I think there's this kind of like smooth continuum. And I think that's part of what makes these illnesses really confusing is that, um, you know, we tend to think like, oh, there are distinct things that go wrong. And there's this illness and there's that illness. And yes, you could have both illnesses at the same time. But fundamentally, they're two distinct things, you know, siloed. Right. And I think that's just not the case, you know. Um, Emmy and um, Arosdanlos and Fibro and Lyme and you know all these things are clearly interconnected mm-hmm. um, and kind of part of this bigger picture of 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 how it is that things can chronically break inside us. Mm-hmm. So at this point, I mean, you know, I feel like there's. So at this point, I would say I have mold illness more than I would say that I have ME. Like, it feels like a a more useful description. But at the same time, I wouldn't say I have a different illness now than I had 10 years ago. Like, it's the same illness. Then I would have called it ME. Now I would more call it mold illness. 
but it mm-hmm. feels like okay this is all part of this kind of big brew yeah. um and yeah so i mean in particular the main reason that i would say that mold illness feels like a more accurate um description is that um my symptoms are so directly in response to mold exposure and right. also that i mean i wouldn't say everything is fine exercise wise but Earlier in my illness, I would have said, yes, post-exertional malaise is the central problem. And mm-hmm. at this point, it's like, I wouldn't say I don't have post-exertional malaise, but that doesn't feel like that's the central issue that I'm yeah. dealing with. And that's um, maybe not as dramatic as it was originally. Right, right. Yeah. Other things have become more dramatic, maybe. <laughs> right. <laughs> is more accurate. Right. Yeah. Well, and also because, you know, I mean, even though like at this point I'm still in this kind of a, a fair amount of crisis, like I'm not as like, like my body is not as broken from mold as it once was, you know, it's mm-hmm. very reactive to mold, but mm-hmm. it's, it's, I think I'm overall stronger and healthier. And, um, you know, like today I walked, I don't know, maybe a mile, mm-hmm. um, without difficulty. Um, and you know, like that's a result of having been fairly successful at avoiding mold for the last week. Um, uh, but you know, earlier, like that would have been the, the outcome of like a long, slow process of getting better. And it would have been like, wow, I can walk for a mile, you know, whereas now it's not, that's not a particularly surprising thing. Right. Even though I always be capable of it. Yeah. Um, it's such a moving target. I feel like this is one of the things across the spectrum of what can be really difficult is like if there's somebody who, for whatever reason, only sees you on days when you can walk a mile and then you're trying to explain right. that some days that isn't even physically possible, it like right. does not compute, which is part of the language problem, I guess. But like, yeah. Well, you know, in a funny way for me, the fact that like the paralysis thing is so dramatic. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of a blessing yeah. because like, it's so clear that nobody doubts it. And, yeah. you know, in terms of like what's actually distressing in my life, mm-hmm. the paralysis is not the most distressing thing. Like the brain mm-hmm. impacts yeah. are way more distressing. Like, you know, not being able to think clearly, not being able to get my work done. Mm-hmm. Like the sense of, I mean, like there are times when, John, my husband, you know, might ask, well, what do you want for lunch? And it's like, oh, oh, don't ask me any, like, yeah. I can't <laughs> Too much question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. Um, so, that's... you know, that kind of thing is much worse, much yeah. worse. Yeah. But that's, like, also, like, people can't see it in the same way as yeah. they can the paralysis. You know, yeah. it's like, really, you can't, like, answer what you want for lunch? Or, like, like it's actually de- painful for you to try and think through the decision process? Like, that sounds absurd. <laughs> it does. It does. And it's and it's not something that, it's not something that people can see. And it's not something that a healthy person has ever experienced, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, at least most healthy people, I think, have never been in the state where they really, truly, like, it was truly painful to be asked what they want for lunch. Yeah. Um. So having something that is so visible and like, okay, that person is sick, 
Um, it, yeah. There's a weird way that it is a huge blessing. It is a huge yeah. blessing. It's like the visible versus invisible kind of illness yeah. line. Yeah. 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 And the invisible stuff is just so hard. It's so hard. And especially because some of the invisible symptoms, I think, are just way more devastating, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, you can't see pain, you can't see brain fog, um, yeah. you know, yeah. most of those things are just so awful. Yeah, and I think, yeah. like, when it comes to kind of work, which is work and productivity, which are their own loaded words, but if you're a person who, like, you're an academic, you've been u- relying on your brain to turn up for a certain way. Right. And it's like your identity is in it and your livelihood is in it. And you're probably general you, but also specific you. Like your social circle is probably tied up in it. And all of a sudden you can't show up in any of these places of your life the way that you used to. It's like, I feel like, because I feel like there's grief for bodies when your body stops working the way that you wanted to. But it's also grief for like this core part of your identity, which could be intellectual or physical. Because athletes talk about yeah. the same kind of thing. Right. Yeah, I do think it's similar. I mean, I think for an athlete, the like more physical stuff probably has a similar mm. impact. But yeah, for me, it's the brain stuff. It's like, well, wait, who am I if my brain doesn't work? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, those questions are really, really hard ones. They're really, yeah. really hard ones. And, you know, there's an extent to which we can, you know, kind of go to this place of feeling our worthiness regardless but it's a it's a challenge you know yeah, like that's it's not work. it's it's work yeah because and also just in terms of how we get our satisfaction in life you know mm-hmm. like for me writing an article that I'm really proud of and having it you know come out and appear and people read it and react to it and like see the impact in the world and you yeah. know that all makes me feel like oh I'm really great yeah <laughs> like, that's well, like I'm good doing in something world and, yeah yeah and when you can't do any of that, it's like, wait, what? What am I doing in this world? And wait, am I really so yeah. great? <laughs> yeah, like, what's my impact? Are... Yeah. 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 So those things are really, really, really hard. Yeah. yeah. They are. And real. That's... I feel like in addition to just managing your health and body and adapting, like, that's the heart of actually living with it day to day. It's just like, okay. Yeah. I'm a person. I have to wake up. I have to fill my time in a way that hopefully feels sort of good to me. Right. And then like keep also simultaneously trying to get better. So like accept that this is my life now. Right. And work towards my life improving at the same time. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And that it, it is really hard holding on to both of those things. I mean, you know, I always get, I get really hesitant about talking about like the upside of being sick because yeah. being sick sucks, you know, it yeah. sucks. And, and you don't and owe I, anybody an upside also. No, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and also with the upsides that, that you can point to, it's like, well, okay, that's a nice upside, but like, think about all the upsides of being healthy, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> don't you think there are a few more upsides of being healthy? <laughs> Yeah, sometimes. And then, sometimes. but then at the same time, it also feels really helpful and valuable to be able to say, okay, well, here are some positive things that have come out of this experience for me. And, mm-hmm. you know, one of the positive things that's come out of it for me, 
and this particular positive thing probably would not have come out of being healthy is um, like there is a kind of fundamental sweetness of being alive that I feel at this point that is independent of whether I get what I want, you know, mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. you know, whether my body is functioning the way that I want it to, whether my brain is functioning the way I want it to, any of that stuff, you know, I, I feel like I have learned, like developed an ability to say, wow, like the sun is shining in through this window on my skin and it feels so good. And like, what a blessing to like be able to lie here and feel the sun on my arm. Like, wow. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Um, and that sense of, you know, when I was younger, um, I, I start the book actually talking about when I was building my house and, and my then husband was sick and, and that experience kind of broke me at the time. Like I just, you know, things were not going the way I wanted them to. And I was trying so hard. I was working so hard and like, I could not make my husband better. Mm-hmm. Um, he was bipolar and just really fell apart during those years. I could not make the experience of building the house be what I wanted it to be. I could not, you know, I, I just couldn't, I, you know, I couldn't do yeah. it. And I didn't yeah. have any way of understanding that, you know, it felt like, okay, I've done something wrong here and I need to figure out what I've done wrong and fix it so that everything will start going right again. Yeah. And, and, um, yeah, I was pretty suicidal in those years. You know, I thought about suicide a lot and, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. Excuse me. Um, And at this point, I don't like. I'm not saying nothing could push me there because I know that's not true. Right. But in a a, like day to day thing, it's not a place I go. Um, Even when circumstances are actually much more difficult than what I was dealing with when I was younger, like Mm -hmm. you know, I not getting what I want doesn't make me feel like life is not worth living. Um, mm. whereas when I was younger, it felt like, well, like I want to be good. I want to be skillful. I want to learn how to accomplish things so that I get what I want. And that's what life is about. And so if I just can't, no yeah. matter how hard I work and try, well, like, I don't like this game and I don't want to play it anymore. <laughs> um, yeah. Like, what am I doing here? Right. Right. Yeah. So, you know, that is, that does, I mean, you know, again, like, I don't want to say, Wahoo! Everybody should get sick like this. It's great. It's worth it. But um, the fact is that I have gotten sick like this, and it right. is the particular life that I have to lead. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, that is a very great gift that yeah. has come to me out of it that um, that I treasure. And you know, and the other thing that I would say about that is, on one level, yeah, getting sick sucks. I wouldn't wish it on anybody. And on another level, like there's just a lot of suffering in this life. You know, there Mm -hmm. just is like, whether you get sick or you don't get sick, like the vast majority of us one way or another have a lot of suffering in this life. And, um, like it's not really about minimizing that, you know? Yeah. Like it's not like our happiness is, um, directly correlated with lack of suffering. Um, So, you know, like on the one hand, yeah, I wouldn't, I would, I would much rather be healthy. 
And on the other hand, this happens to be the life that I've had to live. And like, it's a pretty good life. Yeah. I'm happy with it. Yeah, which is good. And I that super resonates with me of like, mm-hmm. sure, would it be nice if whatever like path I drew out at 18 or 21 had, <laughs> right. had exactly worked <laughs> out? Like, yeah, I probably would have also liked that. But at a certain point, you're like, okay, this is my body and I I can learn to listen to it and learn to enjoy the things that it does and the moments that are working kind of like Mm -hmm. you say about sunlight. It's like, well, I'm not too busy to notice, which I would have been, you know, 10 years ago or whatever. Right. Right. I love that. I love that. Um, Is there anything in your brain about, any of this wide spectrum of things to talk about that we have not gotten to somehow that we haven't covered that you've been thinking about? Well, just one other thing, just one, I guess one other thing yeah. that occurs to me is, is, you know, another, another, um, another thing that's come to me through being sick is that, that I've ended up with this role of, um, you know, through my journalism, um, mm-hmm. really kind of standing up for chronically yeah. ill people. Um, totally. and you know, I've done a lot of work to debunk the PACE trial, which we mentioned briefly earlier. Yes. Um, and I which know is, I've read some of your stuff on that. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's out and that's there. Really, People can Google it. Yeah. Um, and, and again, in combination with a lot of other people who have done a lot of hard work, I don't want to say that this is my victory, but mm-hmm. like, I feel like I've contributed to the victory. Like things are really changing with regard yeah. to that. And, um, and that's, that's super satisfying. And, um, you know, also when the really terrible Netflix series afflicted came out, um, I wrote an op-ed for the LA times about that and, and like being in a position, um, where like I have the skills, I have the connections and frankly, I like, you know, can afford to do it because most of that is like a huge amount of work for very little pay. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Uh, <laughs> you know, unfortunately, like the more meaningful it is, generally the less you get paid. <laughs> yeah, I've done some really fun but, writing for hire before, but it's uh, <laughs> repetitive and boring. Right, right. Um, but that's that's hugely it's hugely satisfying and and just gratifying and meaningful, you know. And um, uh, I feel I just feel grateful to be in a position to do work that actually affects people's lives. I mean, just today I got a Facebook message from somebody who said that she figured out that mold was her problem as a result of reading one of the articles that I wrote. And like, it's just, it's an amazing thing. And, um, and I, I, um, I just feel really, yeah, I feel really grateful to be in a position I can, uh, you know, have, have some positive impact in this world. You know, what else are we here for? Yeah, totally. Yeah. And you're because like you say, like your background really kind of uniquely. I love this about your book, but about your writing. It's like because you had been so I'll say rigorously embedded in science, which might not be how you would describe it. But you talked about that at the beginning of this conversation, too. It's like you get sick and you're like, okay, cool. Everything I know so far tells me that there will be an answer. So I'm going to go find it. And to, to be able to like live in that world and converse with people in that world as you're leaving it like you get to be a translator in some ways too Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. there are 
plenty of people in the chronic illness and then also I would say just alternative wellness space online who are like completely non-credible, just completely non-credible <laughs> people putting garbage out onto the internet and making everybody else look right. bad. Right, so, totally. So also, thank you for writing about your expression, expression, experience from a place of not that. Like, <laughs> it's true that this stuff takes us into, yeah, like going to psychics or all of the other like things that people do. Celery juice is a big deal right now. I don't know if it's helping people. Maybe it is. But it's like right. you get there and, and going through that process for people who have never been there even just that is really mm-hmm. important and incredibly helpful, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Journalism. Yep. <laughs> um, yeah. Sometimes you can actually do good things with it. <laughs> what a world. Um, <laughs> wonderful. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. This has thank been you. excellent. Thank you for listening to episode 25 of No End in Sight. You can find Julie's book, Through the Shadowlands, just about anywhere. Uh, she has a website and it's on Amazon for starters. You can find this show on Instagram at No End in Sight Pod with periods where the spaces should be. And you can find me on both Instagram and Twitter at Venice B. I've got many more stories to share with you. So make sure you subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. As usual, don't forget that I have a small Facebook group called Chronic Hustlers for people living with chronic conditions who are self-employed. Now that I'm trying to get back on a more regular work-type schedule, I'm hoping to get this group a little more active. And finally, this podcast is supported by my cross-stitch company, Digital Artisanal. When I'm up for it, I make simple modern patterns that you'll actually want to hang in your home. I love to cross-stitch as a way to feel productive during flares when I'm stranded in front of the television. One of these days, I'm going to get to work on some spring and summer patterns. I'd love it if you checked us out at digitalartisanal.com. Thanks for listening.